Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the first edition of The Hedgehog and the Fox for 2018, the new podcast that seeks out answers to questions large and small. My name is George Miller, and the questions I'm pursuing in this programme are all about Liverpool English. Where did it come from? Why is it spreading? What's distinctive about it? I would defy anyone to spend much time in Liverpool and not be struck by the language, and not be struck by the creativity of the language and the vitality of the language. I was, I was brought up in a culture where um, making jokes, telling stories, being able to use language in creative ways was valued. That was an asset. And that still strikes me as being a particular part of Liverpool culture. You know, if you're good at telling jokes, if you're good at making puns, if you're good at telling funny stories, that has social status. Um, And I think that adds something to the sort of vitality and creativity of the language. My guest today is Tony Crowley, compiler of the Liverpool English Dictionary, which was published recently by Liverpool University Press. Half a dozen years ago, Tony, who's Professor of English at Leeds University, but grew up in Liverpool, published Scouse, A Social and Cultural History. The new dictionary is a sister project to that, and one that has been close to his heart during many years of research. As you'll hear, he believes that the best way to approach the wit, the richness, the diversity of how Liverpudlians speak and write is by taking their language seriously. Not that this isn't a dictionary that will make you laugh aloud at the sheer creativity of Liverpudlian English. When we met last month in Leeds, I began by asking Tony about the language he'd heard around him when he was growing up in Liverpool. I think one of the really interesting things about that is that you're not really aware of it until later when you start to reflect upon it. To me, of course, the language that I grew up with was a sort of natural language of the environment. It was it was just the language that everyone spoke. So, so there was nothing unusual about it in a sense, except that people used to talk about it. So there's a certain amount of self-reflexivity about it. People used to say, that's what we say in Liverpool, or that's a really Scouse expression. And so, so I was aware it was different in the sense of it was ours in, in some peculiar way. But of course, it's not until you go away, either geographically or, or in terms of social mobility. When you move, then you become aware of the difference. So as a kid, there were certain terms that people would use, and, and I'd be conscious that they were Liverpool terms. Although there were many cultural aspects that I didn't understand in that respect at all, whereas much later it turns out you know, they are very specifically local. I mean, if I could give an example of that. When I was a kid, on Good Friday morning, we burned an effigy of Judas on a bonfire very early on in the morning. 
sort of half past six or whatever, seven o'clock. Like Guy Fawkes in a way. Now, I grew up thinking that everybody did that. And then later on in life, even as an adolescent, when I started meeting people from different parts of Liverpool at, at the school I went to, it became clear to me that that was a, a very particular activity that took place in a very special part of town where I grew up. And then I realised when I was a bit older that it wasn't even particular to that part of town. It was actually particular to about five streets. In fact, the strange thing about that, and this, this sort of bears upon the language, it's like a lot of the words of Liverpool in a way, they actually come from somewhere else. And then they're imported and then you think of them as being your own. But that cultural practice is actually actually comes from Portugal. And it was Portuguese sailors who'd started this thing of building a bonfire and then they burned this effigy. And then we'd inherited it and we'd sort of thought of it as our own. And, and a lot of words are like that. Of course, they come from elsewhere in, in the world, mostly through trade in Liverpool's case. But they come, come through to the sort of local language and then they just become part of the language and then, you know totally without any sort of self-reflexivity at all, they become your own. You're not aware of it. Uh, and then gradually, you know, that becomes much clearer and you, you gain a sort of greater sense of um, the way in which language or, or indeed culture opens out into the world. So was it when you went south as a student that you became more conscious of the language that you had used at home in, in Liverpool and became aware of differences between that and standard educated received pronunciation and speech yeah to a large extent i mean i spent my first year at oxford university thinking that i didn't speak english and then i spent my second or third year at oxford university thinking that they didn't speak english it was a strange thing in a way it was um i mean you really did come up against um linguistic difference at its most extreme sort of level um, at the university, especially in those days, I think. But I met people who at university who, who couldn't quite understand me. But to be fair, I couldn't quite understand them. So there was a lot of miscommunication in a way, and there was a lot of sort of perceptions, which now I think of as just being sort of petty prejudices on both sides, really. Did you sound different then from you do now, or did you use language very differently from you do now? I would imagine so. I mean, I can't know, but I would imagine so. It gets, sort of the edges get knocked off in a way, although, you know, it's all relative that. The further away you get from any sort of language base, the more the perceptions change. So when I was in America, for example, um, people often used to say to me, oh, your voice sounds posh. Nobody in England has ever said that to me. Nobody in England ever will say that to me. Um, so the further away you get, the, the, the perceptions change. The more local it is, um, then the more subject you are in a way to, to particular types of attitudes. So, so, for example, when I first came back from uh, university, at the end of my first term, people said to me, your language has changed. Now, I imagine it hadn't changed very much. And I imagine that would have been a surprise to the people I was at university with, the idea that my language had changed in any substantive way. But it does change. Of course, it changes in, in small ways. Although when I go back to Liverpool now, it, it's very easy to slip into a different form of language. I mean, I find that natural, really. And I think that type of accommodation is just a, it's a normal linguistic process. So it's not unusual. And that's not just 
accent? Is that also the way you use language, the choices of words you make? Does it go to all levels of language? Oh, yeah, it's not just accents. Um, I mean, one of the points about the book, in a way, one of the things I wanted to do in the book is to show that um, the local language of Liverpool is not just an accent because part of my perception, in a way, is that um, Liverpool's speech has been reduced to an accent. But it's much more complicated than that. It, it, it has a historical vocabulary of its own, and, and that's what I tried to trace in the dictionary. And I was determined to do that. I wanted to say, I think partly because it's a sort of reflex of popular culture, really. How is it that you identify Liverpool? You don't identify it through the use of particular words. You identify it through the accent. So when people want to characterise someone as coming from Liverpool and so on, they use a particular accent. And then people perceive, you know, whatever it is that they perceive. And there's usually a set of attitudes which go along with the accent. And that's the way it's done, really, rather than in terms of vocabulary. But I was always very aware well, when always, I mean, certainly from, from my time at university, I was very aware that there was a whole set of words which were distinctively Liverpudlian or, you know, Liverpudlian or Lancastrian or Northern or shared sometimes with Glasgow or Dublin or Belfast. There was always something very specific about the vocabulary, I think. And I wanted, I wanted to get that over. For me, you know, it's important to say that the language of Liverpool is more than the accent. It's, it, the accent has been the focus, not just within popular culture, but also for linguists. I mean, they tend to focus on the accent rather than anything else. Tell me about the project, because I know you've been working on it for a good number of years. What was the original aim? What did you set out to do? And what, what were the challenges of doing it? The original, I mean, it's like all research projects in a way. It doesn't start off as a research project. And the best research projects, I think, always come out of personal interest. You know, if you're interested in something, you want to do something and and you've got a personal sort of motivation for it. That's the best basis, I think, for research. In my case, we did this strange paper at the end of my degree called The History of the English Language. And in that paper, you had to talk about all sorts of technical linguistic things like semantic expansion or semantic narrowing or the importation of words from abroad and so on. And it struck me that it would be a good thing to do some examples from Liverpool English. So that was really the start of it. Although even before that, I'd kept note cards and I just jotted down differences in the use of particular terms. I started noting them down. Then I used them academically in this exam strange to think of now. And I started recording it. And then I started recording, um, as I was reading in the literature of Liverpool, the lost literature of Liverpool, I started recording, you know, particular types of word, instances of words, or I looked in the media and found, you know, coverage of Liverpool words, or disputes about words and so on. And I started building up a sort of profile. I mean, these were notes, literally just notes. And I, I, you know, I'd make a note and then I'd put it in the drawer and and so on. And it, and it built up into a file over the years. And then when I was in California, so sort of importantly at a distance from Liverpool, I decided to look into the history of language in Liverpool uh, because I was brought up with a particular story, which was Scouse, as it, as it was called, although as I found in my research, it was, it was only called Scouse from about 1950. So it's a recent development. That. But I decided to, to research the history and to interrogate this story, that, which was that Scouse was formed by Lancashire dialect plus the language of Irish immigrants in the 1840s. It turns out that that's a complete misunderstanding. 
and their history is much more complicated than that. And it actually goes much further back into the 18th century. Liverpool is a, it, it's a contact language. It's a contact culture in a way. It's built up on the basis of repeated patterns of immigration, not just Irish immigration, but immigration from all around the world. When people came to Liverpool, they brought their language with them. Some of it stuck. And that forms, you know, a significant part of the vocabulary. And, you know, the, the people could be coming from the other part, the other side of the country. They could be coming from Scotland. They could be coming from Ireland. But they could be coming from Germany, Russia, the West Indies. There's a lot of Arabic uh, in, in Liverpool as well. So, so there's, you know, this conglomeration of languages in a way, this melting pot of languages, that, that turns out to be the actual history of the language. So... You know, I was really interested in sort of finding out what the history was. And and then I, I, I sort of wanted to set the history straight. So I wrote a book called Scouse, A Social and Cultural History, which really refuted the old story and presented this new story. And then one of the things that I had to do for Scouse was to read the lost literature of Liverpool, because that's really where you find the materials sort of representations of the language. Let me just ask you why you call it the lost literature. Uh, well, because there's a whole history of uh, the Liverpool novel, for example, from the 1850s onwards, which is simply lost in the sense that nobody ever reads it. It's not in print, although some of it is absolutely fascinating. For example, there's a whole series of novels in the 1850s to about the 1880s, which are critiques of mercantile capitalism. There's a whole series of Anglo-Welsh novels um, set in Liverpool uh, because the Welsh are a very big influence in Liverpool. There's a number of early 20th century feminist novels, never read. Then there's James Hanley, a very important writer, I think, much neglected. He wrote a five-volume history of a family called The Furies. It's an amazing achievement in in many ways. Uh, In the 40s and 50s, there's a whole series of race novels about uh, interracial marriage. And then... For about the past 20 years or so, maybe 30 years, there have been a history of dialect novels written in Liverpool. So there's a whole history of this really fascinating pattern of uh, representations within narratives, important narratives, I think, in literature, but it's lost. So I had to do a lot of digging in, in the archives or trying to get print stuff printed up or trying to find extremely rare copies of these books. And I sort of waded through that in order to get a sense of the history um, for example, you know, when did what did people call Liverpool English before they called it Scouse? The answer turns out to be Liverpudlian English or Liverpool English. And then Scouse gets adopted as a term for the language of Liverpool for only from about 1950 onwards. Um, so, so I traced this history and I read this literature. And then I realised, because all the time as, I, as I'm um, reading this literature, I'm taking notes. I'm recording instances of words or words used in particular ways or new ways or distinctively Liverpudlian senses of words and I'm recording them all and I realized that I had this enormous bulk of material and at that point I thought um, you know this would make a dictionary this would make a uh, at, at one time I thought this would make a glossary a short glossary and then I realized it, it could be a dictionary and what I wanted to do is to make it a, a really properly scholarly piece of work so it's edited. The, the dictionary is edited on exactly the same principles as the Oxford English Dictionary, historical principles, which means uh, I have to present the history of the word. I have to give evidence for the word. There's lots of words um, which I didn't put in the dictionary. There's a few hundred words which didn't make it into the dictionary. And the reason for that is because I don't have the evidence. So I don't have anything in writing. So it's like the OED in a way. If it's not, if they don't have the evidence, they don't put it in. So, so there's, a bit, there's a bit missing in that sense. 
But I decided to do it on exactly the same principles because I wanted to say, here is a very distinctive form of language, which I think is an important form of language. But here's the vocabulary. It's not just an accent. Here's the vocabulary. And I wanted to present the vocabulary in, a, um, in as scholarly a way as possible. There's, there's lots of examples of sort of um, Liverpool dialect books, which are anecdotal at best, often not just light, but sort of mocking in a way. Whereas this was a, an attempt to say, OK, what happens if you take a local form of language seriously and set out to try and record it in the usual scholarly fashion? And, you know, and I was I was fascinated to find out that you could do that and you know, in the dictionary as a result of that. Yeah, as a Glaswegian, that resonated with me, what you said about previous treatments tending to be in the register of humour. It was purely, you know, entertainment books for Christmas stockings, usually with a maybe an exaggerated Glaswegian phrase and then a translation into a yeah. kind of high-flown English that no one actually yeah. uh, speaks. And aside from, you know, from the fact that they're just sort of gift books, I think it does somehow shape a view of the language of a particular region, if that if it's only ever played for comedy. Oh, absolutely. Um, there's f- five volumes of a series called Learn Yourself Scouse, the first of which was published in 1966. And it's a sort of joke book. It's a sort of serious book of folklore and folk linguistics in one sense. And, and it's, invali- it's got invaluable material in it, but it's a joke. It's very double-edged and very ambivalent. And I've always found that about the language of Liverpool, that people from Liverpool are very ambivalent about it. On the one hand, they're very proud of it. And yet, on the other hand, they seem to have taken on board this very negative view of their own language at one and the same time. So it's a very curious phenomenon, that, and I'm interested in that. Let me give you an, a, a sort of contemporary example of that um, It's a puzzle within the study of language at the moment as to why the language of Liverpool, in terms of accent but also vocabulary, why it's spreading. And it is. It's spreading into North Wales. It's spread into the the Wirral Peninsula. It's spread towards uh, Manchester. And it's spread south in terms of Cheshire. Now, given that it's such a stigmatised form of language, why is it spreading? That is a genuine puzzle. But I think it's to do with ambivalence and it's to, it's to do with the ambivalence around identity. It's at one and the same time sort of stigmatised, but also the sort of identity that people want. So it's, it's peculiar. It's also counter, of course, to the story that we're told about globalisation, which is, you know, that globalisation will bring homogenization, the local will be eradicated and so on. You know, in the case of Liverpool, exactly the opposite is happening. And I suspect that might be the case for other other places around Britain. Um, so that's an interesting phenomenon, I think. But the jokey thing, you know, that's how they sold it. It was sold as a sort of popular, we can laugh at ourselves sort of uh, medium. The problem with that is it's good to be able to laugh at yourself. But if everyone else is laughing at you as well, it's, you know, then it then it becomes sort of um, double-edged and it's sort of problematic. You know, irony is only irony if it works, you know. And then it's not irony at all. <laughs> So I, I was always interested in that, that they sold it as a sort of joke series. Now, you know, they did invaluable work, the people who put Learn Yourself Scouts together, because they, they recorded over quite a long time sayings that were very particular um, to the city. At the same time, they presented it in this sort of jokey, non-serious and sometimes snobby way. You know, I, I, I sort of have a difficulty with that. And I think that's why I tried to, to say, OK, let's be scholarly about it. Let's just say, treat it as any other linguistic form and just record it. 
Um, so there's nothing in the book about, isn't this funny or isn't this comic or the things people say and so on. I'm not interested in that, really. I'm really interested in trying to say, OK, let's take it seriously, record it and see what happens. How difficult was it to decide whether a word qualified? I mean, clearly there are some words which are almost exclusively mm. used in Liverpool. But other words, some readers might be quite surprised to see included here because they may think of them as belonging to a more general kind of um, vernacular English. Yeah. I mean, that was a very difficult decision. And it's a sort of methodological decision in a way. The rule I had was, do I have evidence that it's used here? Do I have evidence that it's used in a distinctive sense here or an early sense here? And if it was, then I included it. Uh, Some of the terms, they do belong to different forms of English. And there's good reason for that. I mean, languages don't have strict borders. You know, there are no walls around languages. They're they're, they're porous, the borders of language. So words shift and so on. But I was very interested in in trying to establish, okay, is this a Liverpool usage? Is it earlier than, I'll give you a good example of that, footy. It's called hypochorism, which means a shortening or diminutive. It's not quite an accurate technical term, actually, but it's the only one we've got. But there's many, many examples of that in Liverpool speech. Now, I just took it that footy was a, a sort of general word and so on. Turns out the record of footy in the OED is from Australia. Uh, so they say it originates in Australia in, in the 1920s and 30s. Whereas I found examples earlier in Liverpool usage. So my, my rule really was if I could find something earlier and I could establish that it was used in Liverpool, or if it was used in a different sense, or if it was used um, in a sort of particular way that fitted in with all other elements of culture, really, with words around it, and I could show, okay, this is used within this particular vernacular form, then I put it in the dictionary. Another example of it is scouse. Now, lobscouse is a much older word, older term. Uh, comes from the early 18th century. Scouse, the shortened form, is... The OED says it's used uh, from 1840 onwards. My my research showed me that it was used in Liverpool uh, from the 1790s in the poor in in a recipe for the the poorhouse in Liverpool in the 1790s. So the shortened form, I think, is very specifically Liverpudlian. The older form, lobscouse, may well have been Liverpudlian, but there's no evidence for that in the early 18th century. It's um, it, it's unclear where, where the term comes from, and, and there's a lot of speculation about that, as there is about a lot of these words. I mean, lobscouse is one of those things that people just make up the, the etymology or the origin of the word. Uh, so lobscouse, for example, people thought it was lob's course, that's to say a dish which was served to a lob, uh, a lob being a clown or a bumpkin. And then it was um, people said, well, it's not lob is things that you throw. So uh, it's just the stuff that you throw into stew, lob. The most plausible explanation is that it either came from England or it came from the Baltic. In Latvian, lab scouse means a good bowl or a good dish. So that's a plausible explanation for it. But as is often the case when we're researching into the history of language, we pretty quickly run up against the limits of what we know. And actually, the truth is, we don't know the etymology of Scouse. Uh, and there's lots of words like that. There's an awful lot of speculation. And some of the stories are wonderful. And I'm interested in the stories because, you know, here is evidence that people are interested in language and they're making stories up about the origins. And that, that tells us something, in a way, about an attitude towards a local form of language. 
So did you have to have corroboration for if you came across what might have been a folk etymology for a word, did you have to have corroboration before you put it in the dictionary? Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the problem with folk etymologies is that they're all plausible, you know, except, I mean, the extreme ones are obviously not, but, you know, there's that sort of middle range of them which are all plausible. Uh, and then if you look at it, if you look at it in detail, and what that means is searching through dictionaries of other languages, dictionaries of etymology, some of which are more reliable than others, of course. But if you, you know, you can search through and you can sort of, you can more or less establish whether something makes sense or not. Uh, but sometimes we don't know. All we've got is the stories. A really good example of that is the name Liverpool. Nobody knows what the real origin of the name Liverpool is. It could be from lava, meaning a type of seaweed. The liver bird is totally mythical. So, you know, that's an example of a word. There's so many different stories about the origins of the term Liverpool. But the truth is, as historians of language, we just don't know. How did you approach the issue of racist or sexist language? Well, I thought it was really important to record it because one of the ways in which I characterise the history of Liverpool is to say, you know, this is a glorious and a bitter history. Uh, and, it, and it can be both at the same time, I think. But the bitter side of the history and the vicious, violent and aggressive side of the history, which includes racism and indeed sexism, needed to be recorded, I think, because if you leave those terms out, then you're given a completely artificial picture of the language. And that's not fair, I, I think. It's not fair to the people who are on the receiving end of that language, but it's also not fair to the people who are using it. We need the full story. So I put those words in, and I wanted to say about those terms, those words, you know, these are specifically used in Liverpool. It is part of the history of the place. It's part of the language of the place and so on. And it's important that that's said. And then what I did at the beginning of the book was to say, you know, there are terms in this in this text which are offensive uh, and derogatory, but it's nice to be on that side of history where we can say they are offensive and derogatory. You know, I'm not recording terms which are not used in offensive and derogatory ways. We know that about them now. Uh, and of course, many of them have disappeared and many of them are historical. There's a term in the book, uh, cross-cut. That is the term for Jewish and Chinese women's genitalia, a cross-cut, uh, because it is this bizarre anatomical belief about Jewish and Chinese women. Well, that was common in Liverpool uh, English in 30s, 40s and 50s, as far as I can tell, and that's attested. And the, you know, the reason that's in the book is because there's evidence for it. Um, but that needs to be recorded too, I think, because there's a whole set of attitudes there which we need to know about and we need to reflect upon because they've got things to tell us, important social lessons to tell us. You talked earlier about the spread of Liverpudlin beyond the, beyond the city and I guess maybe there's a comparison there with the spread of estuary English in the, in the southeast. Does that also include vocabulary or is that more accent and inflections? I wondered if some of the, the language that you record in the book is... Is, is dying out and the, the lexicon is, is becoming more standardised even if the, the accent is spreading? I don't think it is. That's the perception. It's the accent that's spreading. But uh, one of my students, for example, at the moment, on doing an undergraduate dissertation, she's from St. Helens, which is sort of now borderline Liverpool. It didn't used to be. The border with Liverpool used to be sort of seven miles from the city centre bank. That was it. You crossed that border and then you were into Lancashire. And it sounded very different and from one side of the road to the other. It was, it was that clear, really. It's not like that anymore. So um, the older generation in St. Helens speak very much as though they're from Lancashire, as though they're from St. Helens. 
and their, their language is very, very particular to a generation and a place. The younger generation use a language which is very specifically uh, related to Liverpool, not just in terms of accent, but also in terms of particular words. One of the words that she's looking at, for example, is the use of the word la uh, to mean lad. That wouldn't have been found, I think, a generation ago as far as St. Helens. It's now used by the, the younger generation. They also have a whole series of terms, for example, in relation to drugs, which are, you know, some of which are Liverpool terms, nicknames or shortenings in particular, and they use them. So I don't think that uh, the vocabulary is disappearing. It's changing. It's changing quite dramatically. Although what I've noticed is that there's a sort of middle generation and an older middle generation who use an awful lot of terms which which really effectively have died out in sort of common use, but they use them ironically. So they use them when they're sort of presenting themselves as being Liverpudlians. So what would be an example of one of those? Well, this is not a good example in one sense because it, some of the younger generation use it. But there's a term um, in Liverpudlian English which is owlass. <laughs> it's very hard to explain what that means. It means someone who's sort of um, annoying... Uh, difficult, exasperating, but it can cover um, all sorts of different. T- it's very hard to be precise in a, in a way because it covers all sorts of all sorts of behaviour, but generally annoying behaviour. And I, I think the an older generation uses that phrase very consciously when they're talking to a younger generation and identifying as Liverpudlians. So they're sort of saying, in one sense, you know, that's that's part of our identity, but it's part of a generational identity. As but. In a way, that's probably not the best example because because there are younger people who use that. I mean, some of my nephews and so on would would use that term. Um, but I don't think the vocabulary is dying out; it's changing. But I don't I don't think it's actually disappearing. One of the interesting things about um, the first article published on Scouse in 1950 was Scouse, a dialect which is dying, in 1950. So in one sense, Scouse was dying the day it was discovered. I mean, as it, as is often the case with dialects, people believe that dialects are, are dying out. But people believed in the 19th century that the railways would destroy the dialects. And then they believed that paid holidays would destroy the, the dialects because people would all be conglomerating together in Blackpool or whatever. And then they believed that education would do it. And then they believed that television would do it. Radio and television would do it. And then they believed that globalisation would do it. But actually, it doesn't seem to be happening. Um, so I, I, I don't think it's dying out. So do you think television and social media and YouTube may actually be um, enhancing the effect of Liverpudlian yeah. rather than causing it to die out? As, a, as people can find their own, you know, their own niche, they can find people who speak like them on the screen, big or small. Yeah, you know, good and bad, I think, in that sense. I think there's nothing worse than the effect of Facebook, which is the, the production of communities of people who like the same thing. I mean, that's one of the sort of negative effects, I think. On the other hand, it does sort of produce communities of people for whom identity is a sort of key issue. So, um, you know, it may well be the case that groups of people who come from particular localities use local forms of language to signal that. The other thing about that, of course, is, I mean, people say... Literacy is dying because of the effects of social media. So I don't think that's the case. I think pro- there are some people who are probably reading more and writing more than they've ever done before. What they're not doing 
who's writing and reading in in sort of standard forms. You know, so they're producing this new language, which is usually a sort of shortened, convenient form of language. And and I think that's having a big effect on the language. The long term effect, I don't know, because I don't know where we're going in terms of technology. Sometimes I look at um, some Twitter stuff or, or Facebook stuff uh, from users from Liverpool, and they're using distinctively Liverpool terms. Sometimes, ironically, as a way of sort of signalling, this is you know I am from Liverpool, and this is what this signals. You often see that, uh, for example, in comment pages on the local newspaper, um, that people will use very, very local words in order to signal, you know, I am from here and this comment therefore has authenticity and so on and so on. But you see new distinctively Liverpudlian items of vocabulary being created, even if they may be not in the literature that you surveyed, but maybe will be in a future edition of the dictionary that, um, you know, that are still being, still being minted. I think so. I think so. Um, many of which are, are these hypercharisms that um, that I talked about before. I, I've got a list of about 400 of them. A lot of them I've just heard in speech. Very few of them have made it into literature. It's like the OED in that sense, that you're always catching up. If you look carefully at OED, there are some items in OED which haven't been revised since the first time they were uh, they made it into the OED. You know, So sometimes it says, last revised 1911. So you know, there's been an awful lot of writing since then. But you're always catching up, and that's uh, that's just in the nature of lexicography. And, and again, you know, all respect to the OED lexicographers, but uh, but you're always catching up in a sense, and that's a problem with lexicography. I think one of the most fascinating sites for new language, although it has to be treated carefully, is UrbanDictionary.com, because you'll find out in UrbanDictionary.com there's you know there's all these new phrases. Now some of them will stick, some of them won't. Some of them are jokes, some of them are not. Even if they're jokes, they might get taken up anyway. But that's a site where you can see that there's all this new language being um, produced, categorised like slang, I guess. Um, but, it, but some of it makes it into the language. You know, there's a text by Ben Johnson produced in 1596 called The Poetaster, in which one character uh, speaks all these new-fashioned words which will never catch on and so on, and he's made to vomit them up because they're so disgusting and so on, and he gets rid of them and so on. And some of them are, are words like clutched. That's to say, you know, I clutched something uh, to my breast and so on. In the 1590s, uh, that was a horrible slang, nasty word. Uh, and then it just becomes part of the language. So that process takes place in the language all the time, I think. And it takes time to settle. So who knows what the language will be like in 10 years, 15, 20, 25 years time. But I imagine in 25 years time, I won't be around to do it. But I imagine if the dictionary was revised then, it would look different. There'll be a lot of new terms uh, and they would have made it into either literature or certainly into the written medium and they'll become established. It's an interesting question, isn't it? What what written medium or media are acceptable? You know, maybe novels and periodicals will, will no longer be the place where we look for um, instances of language use. Absolutely. Um, I mean, who knows? That's the uh, that's the truth of it. And um, my students say to me, you know, can I use things from Twitter? I said, well, yeah. I mean, it's 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 written. Um, it's a medium which is used and understood. Does it have to be in a novel before it becomes recordable? I don't think so. But who knows what it would be like in in even twenty five years time? You know. 
there'll probably be no jobs and no work, I imagine. You know, it'll all be done by robots and we'll all be able to do something else. Let, 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 as I say, let me ask you in conclusion something maybe a, a bit more positive. We started off talking about the sort of mythologies that we, we have in our heads about identity and language. Do you nonetheless believe that Liverpudlian English has a particular vitality and energy and and power to, to show a particular aspect of the world? Yeah, I do. I like it. I admire it. It's a very forceful form of language, I think. You don't want to generalise too much, obviously. That's that's always a danger with these things. That You, you generalise and then you end up with stereotypes and, you know, stereotypes are not fair and, and so on. They're not accurate. On the other hand, I would defy anyone to spend much time in Liverpool and not be struck by the language and not be struck by the creativity of the language and the vitality of the language. I was I was brought up in a culture where um, making jokes, telling stories, being able to use language in creative ways was valued. That was an asset. And that still strikes me as being a particular part of Liverpool culture. You know, if you're good at telling jokes, if you're good at making puns, if you're good at telling funny stories, that has social status. Um, and I think that adds something to the sort of vitality and creativity of the language. And I like that about Liverpool. I think that's, um, you know, I look back sometimes to, to part of my education uh, and I think, you know, linguistically it was pretty dull, pretty sort of standardised and dull and and everything was modulated and, and it had to be controlled and so on and so on. And there's room for that. Obviously there's room for that. And there's room for a particular type of critical distance, but there's also room uh, for creativity and fun and vitality and I, I find that in Liverpool English, and I and I hope that's what people might find in the dictionary. Some of it's just funny. It's just genuinely, you know, I find it. It's hilarious. And when you when you look at the etymology and so on, you know, some of the words are genuinely sort of creative. I was talking to Tony Crowley about the Liverpool English Dictionary, which is available now in hardback from Liverpool University Press. You can find out more about it on the press's website. Do also visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for news of forthcoming and archive interviews in this series. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, subscribe to the programme on iTunes, where you can also catch up on any interviews you've missed. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.